Final words of instruction are often the most critical and important that any person can ever give, which is why the words of Jesus recorded in John 14 and following, known as the Upper Room Discourse, are among the most helpful for the Christian. Jesus in John 14 and following is just hours away from the cross. He has been with his disciples for three years and he is about to leave them. And what he does is he gathers with his disciples in a borrowed upper room in Jerusalem to celebrate the last significant Passover. And he begins with a great act of humility by washing the disciples' feet. And then following doing that, he predicts Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial. He begins to give to them some final orders. He talks about heaven as a prepared place that he's going to and that they will come to him or he'll return for them. He promises to them the Holy Spirit. And when you come to chapter 15 of John 15, Jesus talks about how they can be productive as his followers until he comes again. Why don't you take your Bible that we read from the passage and turn to John chapter 15. Let me encourage you to use the outline that's provided for you, or at least follow along. We've tried to put the main points there so that you don't have to write everything down. But let me start with four foundational observations. These observations are critically important. Number one, we need to understand as we look at John chapter 15 that Jesus is talking to believers. He's talking to his followers. In other words, this passage is not for the unbeliever. It's not for the non-Christian. More often than not, when the non-Christian reads these verses, they come away hopelessly confused. What's more, when they try to abide in Christ, they find themselves incredibly frustrated. They will find themselves failing. Bear in mind that the command to the non-Christian is not so much to abide in Christ, but to trust Christ, to believe in Christ. That is their point of beginning, their point of contact for becoming part of God's family. That is the means whereby they enter into the family of God. So number one, this passage is for the believer, not the unbeliever. And its purpose is to tell you and me, as followers of Christ, how we can be productive, how we can be fruitful. Secondly, these verses, this teaching moment that our Lord gives here revolves around a symbol, an analogy, an illustration, and that is of a vineyard or vines and branches, which, by the way, would have been very familiar to the Jews of Jesus' day. Because just as the stars and stripes hold significant meaning to us as a nation— what the eagle means to us as Americans, what the beehive means to citizens of the state of Utah, the vine and the branches hold, held a, a special place in the heart of the Jew. Uh, vines and grapes and 
the vineyard were on their coins and their artwork. It was part of their culture. It was on their walls. There was a vine over the entrance of Herod's temple. And because wine was the beverage of choice and necessity that day in Israel, vines and vineyards were everywhere. In fact, it's very likely, as you read the last verse of John 14, where Jesus says to his disciples, come now, let us leave. Again, they were in that upper room. Some have suggested that Jesus spoke these words on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it may very well be that as Jesus was en route to that garden, he stopped by a vineyard. And with a sweeping gesture, he spoke these words that are recorded for us in John 15. I think the third thing to remember is that the main subject of these verses is abiding or remaining. The main subject is not fruit-bearing. That word remain or abide is found 11 times in the first 11 verses of John 15. It's the Greek word meno. It's found in verse 4, three times, once in verses 5 and 6, twice in verse 7, once in verse 9, twice in verse 10, and once in verse 11. In fact, that word is found 40 times in John's gospel and 27 times in John's epistles. So it's a critical word. Remaining or abiding in Christ. So number one, this is for the Christian. Secondly, it revolves around a symbol, that symbol being a vineyard. Thirdly, the subject is abiding or remaining. And the final point is this. Abiding in Christ or remaining in Christ results in fruit-bearing. Fruit is the byproduct of abiding. And again, that's what these verses are really all about. I'm convinced that if you and I can get those four points down, this passage is going to be much easier to follow. And so with that, I want to identify three key elements of this analogy that Jesus is giving, this illustration. In fact, I'm not going to identify them. I'm going to let Jesus identify them. It was obvious that he thought it so important that he doesn't leave the identity of these three things to chance. I imagine that if he had, people would come up with all kinds of goofy and crazy ideas. As I was preparing for this, I came across a great statement that's been attributed to Martin Luther, the great reformer. Luther reportedly said, when the angels want a good laugh, they read commentaries. And I thought that was pretty good. I mean, sometimes commentaries, commentators run down all kinds of rabbit trails. And they will write on and on and on and on. And you wonder, what in the world is he talking about? Jesus doesn't allow that to happen here. So first of all, who is the vine? Well, again, there's no question who the vine is in this illustration that Jesus is giving. No debate. Jesus Christ is the vine. Again, look at verse 1. He says, I am, again, Jesus is speaking, the true vine. By the way, notice that he prefaces it with that adjective, true. He says, I am the true vine. Look at verse 5. He says, I am the vine. 
So the vine is the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, who is the gardener, or as the King James renders it, the husbandman? Or as the New American Standard in the ESV, and I think the RSV, and uh, some of these other translations render it as vine dresser? Well, it's the Father. See verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener, or again, the vine dresser, or the husbandman. Again, you don't have to be a scholar or a seminary graduate to figure that out. Nothing is left to chance. And those of you who are gardeners, you know what gardeners do. In most cases, they own the garden and they care for the vines. They cultivate and they cut off the dead branches. They prune the ones that are producing so that they'll produce even more fruit. A gardener is somebody who works with vines and the branches to ensure productivity. He expects fruit from his vineyard, and he does what is necessary for that to happen. That is the father's job. His job is to work with the vines so that they will produce fruit. The third thing you have to ask is, well, who are the branches? Well, again, that's not left to chance. That's you and me. See verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. By the way, before we go any further, let me just say something important with regards to what Jesus is saying here. There is the tendency on the part of all of us to read passages of Scripture and apply it to everyone but ourselves. You know, so often we, we are reading God's Word and He's thrusting upon us a truth. And what we tend to do is we apply it to our wife or our husband, our children or our friends. That's always a, a temptation to relate the truths of Scripture to someone other than ourselves. Don't let that happen, okay, this morning. Read this passage with your own life in mind. Don't look at others. Look at yourselves. And I'm convinced that what God wants to do this morning is to lead us to that point of our need... And he wants us to look at our life and ask the hard, hard question, am I bearing fruit? Am I a fruitful or a fruitless Christian? Am I abiding in Christ? Am I remaining in Christ? Am I finding, as we're going to learn later, that abiding in Christ means that my prayers are being answered, my life is glorifying God, I have a love for others, and I'm filled with joy? Are those qualities in your life and mine. And what you find here in this extended allegory is God God revealing his purpose in saving us. God wants you and he wants me to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ, so that we will bear much fruit. Jesus is pictured as the true vine, the Father is the vine dresser, and the disciples, and by extension, you and me, are the branches. 
And just as a man plants a vineyard to harvest grapes, so also Christ, true followers, abide in him as branches in the true vine to bear much fruit. Now that raises a very important question, and it's simply this. What is fruit? And secondly, how do you abide? Well, to answer the first question, what is fruit, I want you to keep your finger here in John 15, and I want you to turn back to the book of Isaiah. Okay? I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Now, don't be embarrassed if you're not sure where Isaiah is, because chances are good the person next to you doesn't know where it is either. Find the book of Psalms, which is right about in the beginning of your Bible. Work your way towards the New Testament. You'll go to Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, Isaiah, and then if you go to Jeremiah, you've gone too far. Look at Isaiah chapter 5. Now, as you're locating that, remember what I said earlier. That the vineyard was a very prominent symbol for the nation of Israel. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, God refers to the nation of Israel as the vineyard that he has planted. And what the prophet Isaiah is doing here in Isaiah chapter 5 is he's painting a picture of the Lord planting his vineyard, namely Israel, and expecting from them a good harvest. But what happens is they only produce worthless grapes. Look at Isaiah 5, beginning with verse 1. It says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one has had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit, wild, worthless, tasteless, unfit fruit. Look at verse 3. He asked a searching question. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard that I have done for it, then I have done for it. When I looked for good grapes, what did it yield? Only bad. Now, I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its walls, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow in it. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Now notice, verse 7 the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. Now this is what he was looking for in the way of fruit from them. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. I want to suggest that verse 7 is a key. God was looking for justice and righteousness from the nation of Israel. Not going to take the time to turn, but Psalm 80 uses a similar analogy where it talks about God removing a vine from Egypt, namely the nation of Israel. He planted it in his land, and for a while it prospered. 
But then hedges that protected the vine were broken down. Wild animals came in. They ravaged the vineyard. So what you find the psalmist doing in Psalm 80 is crying out to God to turn again and take care of the vine that he planted so that it will again be fruitful. You've seen that same thought in Jeremiah 2 and 6 and Ezekiel 17 and 19 and then Hosea 10. And in each case, Israel was God's vine that he planted with the intention that it would bear fruit. But they were disobedient. They were unfruitful. Now, let's transfer that analogy over to the New Testament in the words of Jesus. Fruitfulness was the life of God in the nation of Israel. That fruit was justice and righteousness. God wanted to see that produced in that nation, but it wasn't there. And Jesus takes that very familiar analogy and he applies it to his followers. Friend, what does God want to see produced in you and in me? Well, he wants to see the life of Christ. He wants to see Christ's character traits. We call them the fruit of the Spirit. We'll talk about that when we come to Galatians 5. It talks about the fact that there are, first of all, there's the deeds of the flesh, and then there's the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. I want to suggest that the fruit that Jesus is talking about in John 15 is a Christ-like character, a Christ-like conduct, a Christ-like conversation. And if you know anything about fruit, you know that it takes time for fruit to grow. It doesn't happen overnight. As I was preparing for this, I was told that the first three years of a vineyard after it is planted, it produces nothing in the way of useful fruit. It takes a long, long time to grow in your walk with God. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why when the Bible says we're supposed to look for leaders in a local church, it says don't put in a novice. Don't put in somebody who just became a Christian because they've not matured. They're not producing fruit. But you know what? If you are a Christian here this morning, you should see growth and progress in your life. There should be an increased habit of obeying Christ. You should see the fruit of the Spirit increasingly evident in your conduct and in your conversation. You should be hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You should be looking for opportunities to tell others about the Savior. And if those things aren't found in your life, you need to ask the question this morning, why not? Growth in Christ-like fruit should be the normal experience of every Christian. I think it's also safe to say that the fruit that we produce will vary in amount and in kind according to our spiritual gifts. That's why we, we can't go looking at other people. Remember what I said earlier? It's so easy to read this passage of Scripture and say, you know, that person over there, 
So little fruit. No, look to yourself, okay? Don't, don't look at others with this, this message. In the parable of the sower, the good soil represents true believers bearing fruit in response to the word of God. And it varied from person to person. Some bore a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then there was the soil that didn't bear fruit, which represented those who didn't truly trust Christ. We're given different kinds of spiritual gifts. And as such, our fruit will vary, which is why determining your spiritual gift is so critically important. You know, I, th- I would imagine that some of you are still fumbling around trying to figure out what exactly is my spiritual gift. You need to find your spiritual gift. You need to begin exercising that gift so that as you utilize that gift, you can bear fruit. And again, it varies from person to person. So the overall point is both clear and important. Friend, you and I have been saved to bear fruit for Jesus Christ. And if you profess to be a Christian here this morning and you are not a fruit bearer, you need to examine your life. And maybe you need to make a course correction. Maybe you need to trust Christ. Now, fruit bearing is the byproduct or the result of remaining or abiding. That raises the question of what does it mean to remain and abide in the vine? Well, friend, I believe that abiding or remaining in the vine is synonymous with being filled with the Spirit. It's walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, living a dependent life. Some people like to call it living the exchanged life, where you exchange the energy of the flesh for the power of God, the work of God in your life. And I think it involves three fundamental things. Number one, it's dealing with sin. When sin comes into your life, you keep short accounts with God. And just as the vine that is dirty and soiled and laying in the mud is unproductive, so the Christian whose life is soiled by sin cannot be productive. And so when you find yourself sinning, what do you do? You repent. You acknowledge it as sin. You confess it. You seek God's forgiveness. Psalm 66 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Secondly, I would suggest that abiding... Or remaining in the vine is saying yes to God when he speaks to you. When God speaks to you through his written word, when we sing a hymn or a chorus and God is speaking to you, you listen. When his spirit within you is prompting you to do certain things, you listen. When the providential circumstances of your life cause you to go in a particular direction, you Listen, and you follow that advice. You follow that leading. When a mature believer gives you advice, you see that advice as being from God. And you don't look at that person as a budinsky. You look at that person as somebody who's being used by God to speak to you. And third and finally, abiding deals with that moment-by-moment lifestyle. 
where we constantly and consciously depend on God to work. I think it's synonymous with praying without ceasing. Every moment throughout the day, we're just, we're just dependent upon God. And did you notice that in John 15, that's necessary for you and I to, to produce anything of significance? In fact, look at verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Now look at the last phrase. And just let this sink in for a moment. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Wow. And I believe what Jesus is saying here is that you can bear no meaningful, lasting, eternally significant, life-changing, spiritual, and moral fruit apart from God working in your life. He's talking about an authentic transformation of the human heart that brings about a meaningful internal influence for good in the lives of others. Doing those things that bring honor and glory to God. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that apart from a conscious, consistent communion with him, apart from drawing on his presence and power in, his life, in our lives, we can accomplish nothing of spiritual value. And again, that is a very sobering statement. It means that what we do as God's people is we immerse ourselves in his word. We have a dependency upon him daily. We find ourselves embedded in the Christian community. We worship Christ with all of our life. It means we live our life with a mission and a focus for him every day where there's that sense of personal identity. You're in him. You are abiding in him. As I was preparing this, I, I came across an interesting study note that was in the first a study Bible that I ever had. Some of you are old enough to remember the old Schofield Reference Bible. Fifty years ago, that was the gold standard for study Bibles. Today, everybody who's anybody has a study Bible out. They're putting their name on a study Bible, and there's notes for you, and in many cases, they're wonderfully helpful. But when I was growing up, the new Schofield Reference Bible was the study Bible to get. And I consulted that this week. And here's what they said. To abide in Christ is, on the one hand, to have no known sin, unjudged and unconfessed. No interest into which he is not brought. No life which he cannot share. The abiding one takes all burdens to him and draws all wisdom, life, and strength from him. It is not unceasing consciousness of these things and of him, but that nothing is allowed in the life which separates from him. That's a good statement. Now, that raises the question, what does God do to the unproductive, worthless, fruitless Christian? Well, God does something to the person who produces fruit so that he'll produce more fruit as well as the one who doesn't produce fruit at all. See verse 2? Jesus says 
that the gardener, the father, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Friend, the job of the gardener is to get rid of dead wood and to prune a vine that is being productive so that it will produce even more fruit. Merle Tenney, who is a wonderful Bible teacher, writes the following. Viticulture, which by the way is caring for a vineyard, Viticulture consists mainly of pruning. In pruning a vine, two principles are generally observed. First, all dead wood must be ruthlessly removed. And second, the live wood must be cut back drastically. Dead wood harbors insects and disease and may cause the vine to rot, to say nothing of being unsightly and unproductive. Live wood must be trimmed back in order to prevent such heavy growth that the life of the vine goes into the wood rather than the fruit. The vineyard in the early spring looked like a collection of barren, bleeding stumps. But in the fall, they are filled with luxuriant purple grapes. As the farmer wields the pruning knife on the vines, so God cuts dead wood out from among his saints and often cuts back the living wood so that his methods seem cruel. And then Tenney adds this excellent insight. He says, Nevertheless, from those who have suffered the most come the greatest fruitfulness, and that way, and that the way, and that's the way it is with the Father. You know, as I read that, I thought, of some of you. I really did. Because some of you are going through a pruning experience. And it's painful. When you get pruned, you naturally don't produce. And it's a painful experience. I think it's safe to say that immediately following pruning, The gardener does not expect fruit right away. But God does expect you and I to be willing to go through that pruning process so that fruit will come. I think an excellent illustration of this was Elizabeth Elliot, who along with her husband Jim Elliot, who are names no doubt familiar to many of you, they were missionaries in Quito, Ecuador, And Jim Elliott, along with four others, lost his life in martyrdom to the Aka Indians. From that experience, Elizabeth Elliott wrote a book entitled Through Gates of Splendor. She would later remarry, and then she lost her second husband, Addison Leach. And she would remarry a third time. But before she remarried a third time, in 1976... She was addressing the Urbana Missions Conference of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And Elizabeth Elliot told about being in Wells and watching a shepherd and his sheepdog working a flock of sheep. And she says that what that dog would do is he would herd the sheep up a ramp into a tank of antiseptic where these sheep were being bathed 
And the sheep were forced into that tank and they would struggle to climb out, but the dog would snarl and snap at their faces to force them back. And then just as they were about to go out of the tank on the other side, the shepherd would use a wooden implement. He would grab the rams by the horns, fling them back into the tank and hold them under the, under the water, the antiseptic, for a few seconds before releasing them. And Elizabeth Elliot was watching all of this, and she asked the shepherd's wife if the sheep understood what was happening. And she said, they haven't a clue. And then Elizabeth Elliot said this, I've had some experiences in my life that have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor rams. I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from the shepherd I trusted. And he never gave a hint of explanation. She pointed out that we must still continue to trust our shepherd and obey him, knowing that he always has our best interest at heart. She said that it was part of the pruning process. And then she said it is through obedience in times of suffering that we grow closer to our Savior, who suffered and died for us. She said that's part of the pruning process. And I know what some of you might be thinking this morning, Doug, I've, I've, I've been in that pruning process all my life. And I'd like to know when it's going to end. I don't know. All I can tell you is hang in there. The pruning process will indeed be worth it. Now that's what he does to the vine that is producing fruit. What about the vine that produces no fruit? How does God deal with that? Look at verse 2 again. It says, the father as the gardener cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. That truth is amplified in verse 6. Look what he says there. He says, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Friend, reading that for the first time will put chills up your spine. And as you can well imagine, there's a great deal of debate over exactly what exactly Jesus means by this. One popular view suggests that fruitless branches are genuine Christian Christians who, because of their fruitlessness or their failure to persevere in a life of holiness, lose their salvation. In other words, verse 6, where it talks about being picked up and thrown into the fire and burn, is a reference to a Christian losing his or her salvation and then being thrown into the fires of hell as punishment. Now, I would hope that no one here would embrace that view. Because eternal life is just that. It is eternal life. Jesus said in John 6, he said that, he will not lose any that the Father has given to him, but he will give them eternal life and raise them up on the last day. Additionally, Jesus said in John 10, 28 and 29, I give unto them eternal life, and they will never perish, 
and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. For the New Testament is, is replete with verses that teach that you and I, as Christians, are eternally secure. So the question is, what, what is, what is Jesus talking about? When he says he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. What Jesus has in mind is one of two ideas. The first one is that the person who habitually, willfully, knowingly, as a Christian, refuses to abide or remain in Christ who refuses to deal with sin, who refusesly, continuously says no to the word of God, who lives their life in stubborn independence as though they are not Christians. God will, on occasion, step in and judge that non-productive Christian by taking their life prematurely. Now, please understand that no one will ever know the reason for some deaths among God's people, save God himself. And we ought never, never to judge in that regard. But 1 John, as well as 1 Corinthians 11, talk about some Christians being taken prematurely because of their lifestyles. Or... This passage may be referring to those who are in the church who are not true believers. And God cuts them off from the church. You remember that earlier that night, Jesus revealed that Judas was the traitor and he was removed from the twelve. He was taken away. And what Jesus is saying here is that within the congregation of the fruitful... There are some men and women who appear to be believers, but, but they're not. And they will never become fruitful Christians because they're not Christians. They will give every appearance of being a Christian except being fruitful. They're just like, like Judas, and they, they're, they're, they're deceiving everybody. What you find here is what John talked about later in his first letter where he said they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain that they all are not of us. And there are times that God will, as it were, remove people from a church, from fruit-bearing Christians, so that we don't have to put up with them. The fact of the matter is that that has happened over and over again throughout church history. I think we see some of that even to this day. You say, well, Doug, which one is it? I don't know. Maybe it's both. How about that? Let me be diplomatic. I'm going to be the politician this morning. But you know what? Either interpretation is sobering, right? And if you were to force my hand, I'd probably suggest the latter. Well, what, what are the results of the Christian who abides in Christ? Obviously, there's fruit. But notice four things that Jesus says will happen in your life and mine when we 
abide in Christ, when we remain in Christ. Number one, he says in verse 7, that if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you will ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Listen, abiding Christians have a fruitful prayer life. Doesn't mean that we get everything we ask for. Because we're abiding in Christ, we have a divine perspective. So he's not giving us here a card blanche to say, Lord, I wish for a million dollars. I want a happy, trouble-free life. I want perfect health. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that you and I will pray for things that will further God's kingdom. Secondly, he says in verse 8, that as we abide in Christ, the Father will be glorified. The natural outflow of the abiding life is that God is glorified. By the way, notice at the end of verse 8, he says, this is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Now notice, showing yourself to be my disciples. Wow. Friend, if there's no fruit in your life, maybe you're not a follower of Christ. Maybe you really don't know him. J.C. Ryle wrote, fruitfulness in the Christian practice will not only bring glory to God, but will supply the best evidence to our own heart that we are real disciples of Christ. Notice thirdly in verses 9 and 10, we'll be motivated by love. And finally, in verse 11, our joy will reach its maximum. I love that. He says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that my joy may be complete. You know, the Christian life is a very serious life. It's a sobering life. It's hard. It's difficult. It's filled with heartaches. And some of you know that all too well. But you know what you will find as you go through life when you are abiding in Christ that there is that deep-seated joy. I love what one man wrote. He said, joy is the flag that flies over the castle when the king is enthroned. Let me close with two simple lessons. Number one, those who refuse to abide in Christ can expect to live a life of barrenness, sterility, and unhappiness, and continuous pruning. You know why some of you might be going through difficulties? God is trying to prune you, and you're still resistant to it. Secondly, those who abide in Christ can expect a life of fruitfulness, and that fruitfulness will manifest in answered prayer, glorifying God, love, and joy. And you know what? The choice is yours this morning as to what type of relationship you're going to have with him. Now here's the takeaway. If your love for Jesus has grown lukewarm or cold, you need to get back into abiding with Christ. You need to get back into his word. You need to get back into a life of prayer. You need to make it a daily priority. You need to make it the aim of your life that you are going to bring him glory. You're not going to live for self. You're going to obey his commands. You're going to stay focused on his joy. And what you find here is God's prescription for how to grow closer to him and live a productive life.
Let me say finally, if you're here and you don't know Christ, the place to begin is trusting him. You can't abide in him unless you know him. And so what you need to do is come to the cross as a repentant sinner. You need to put your trust in his death and resurrection for you. And when you do, you're in the family of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this timely reminder. Lord, none of us is exempt from having this basic truth given to us on a regular basis. Because we do have a tendency to remember what we ought to forget and to forget what we ought to remember. And so we pray, Lord, that you would seal these truths to our heart by your Spirit. And may we be courageous enough to leave here and apply them to our lives. And we pray towards that end in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.